In the days of Rome, uh, back when warriors would go off to war, oftentimes they would wear helmets. Uh, the helmet was uh, usually made out of leather and then would either have plates of metal or it could have even been fabricated out of metal completely. Uh, but they wore these helmets because there were cavalrymen that at war would ride on horses and they would swing a uh, sword. The sword of the Greek was called a rumphaya. It was a three to four foot sword. And maybe you can remember movies like The Gladiator. Uh, and they, they swing a large sword. Well, the reason that someone would wear a helmet in that day was to protect their cheekbone or their head from uh, being hurt severely or potentially even decapitated. Now, the reason that I mention that is because in Ephesians chapter 6, we are encouraged uh, by Paul as he wrote to the church of Ephesus to put on the armor of God. Last week, we talked about how the armor of God protects a trained man or woman in battle. And we talked about the belt of truth. We talked about the uh, breastplate of righteousness, the feet and the shoes of peace. We talked about the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. But one of the things we didn't talk a whole lot about was in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17, which is the helmet of salvation. Now the helmet of salvation is the thing that guards our minds in Christ Jesus. And ultimately the helmet of salvation guards our minds in Christ because we know that we can deal with whatever's happening here in the present because of the future hope we have through our salvation. Peter told us that we do not have a salvation that is imperishable or undefiled, but it's being kept in heaven for us. And so we know that regardless of what we deal with now in the present day war, the war that's not physical but spiritual, we know that there's an eternal hope and home. And so that gives us hope. But in the midst of our salvation, we're not worried simply about our future. We're also worried about how we deal with the present. And in our salvation, we are encouraged to grow in this thing called sanctification. Everybody say sanctification. Sanctification. Sanctification is a really large word for growing. So the reason that God saves us ultimately, gives us salvation in his son Jesus Christ, is to grow us in his likeness. And one of the ways he does that is when our hearts and our minds are conformed to his image. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, the renewal of your mind, he says, it is that that allows you to test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Basically, the helmet of salvation is what allows us to have a, a mind that's being renewed, that's being renewed in the image of our Creator that's being renewed into the mind of Christ. Matter of fact, that's how Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What Paul writes to the church of Corinth, he goes, Look, if there's someone who hasn't trusted in God for salvation through Jesus Christ, he goes, they don't understand that there's a spiritual battle. They don't understand that there's a war at hand. They don't understand that there are uh, weapons of warfare. They don't understand even the very basic of God's truth because they, they don't believe that this is happening. Even more than that, they're not spiritually discerned. But Paul goes on in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 2, and he says, But the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself uh, to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as so to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Paul says the believer is to have the mind of Christ. How does it happen? To be renewed daily through God's help, to be transformed into his image. Now, what's interesting is, is when we were created as image bearers of God, in Genesis 1, when God said, hey, let us make man in our image, we struggle to identify with all the ways that God created us in his image. But he created us not merely physical, but spiritual. But let me explain something to you. One of the things that God has done for us is to resemble him intellectually. To resemble him intellectually. To, to realize that God has created us with a mind. And ultimately, not just created us to have a mind, but ultimately, Paul says, he's created us and renewed our minds so that we could have the mind of Christ. Now, that's an incredible hope. That's an incredible goal for all of us is to have the mind of Christ, to make sure that we're not double-minded, that we don't 
set our eyes on one thing and, and then quickly be swayed into something else. Uh, that we are not immature in our thinking, but that we grow and we're conformed into the pattern of Christ. That we become mature, that we become steadfast, unmoved. Ultimately, when you think about the gospel of peace, that we have feet that are ready and equipped, it means that we are not easily swayed. And so when you think about this, it's that we're protecting our minds. And ultimately, Paul said to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 6, 17, that you could have the helmet of salvation, which means that you're not easily decapitated by the enemy. And the question is, is has the enemy swayed you? Has he in some ways really questioned things in your mind? Has he in some ways sought to decapitate you, which means to sever your head from your heart? In what ways does he do it? As I was thinking about this this week, in a way that would be practical for us, I see four ways that the enemy seeks to destroy our mind. One of them is just through discouragement. Um, the second one is through doubt. And so you've got discouragement, you've got doubt, uh, you've got discord, and then ultimately, as you kind of continue to move forward, I think just distraction. And so discouragement, doubt, discord, and distraction. Now, when I think about this idea of discouragement, it comes in a variety of different ways, right? Um, a variety of different means as we could easily be discouraged. I don't know about you, but I see parents in the room. Um, one, some of the times, the most discouraging thing for me in my life is as a parent. Um, I think I can't count the number of times that my wife and I, Kelly, have looked at each other in the eyes and thought, we might be the worst parents in the world. Anybody ever felt that? Like, you're just discouraged because you're like, kids ultimately uh, don't do as you ask them to do. And so you see kind of in some ways disobedience. This obedience leads to discouragement. Ultimately, it leads to doubt as a parent, then to discord and disunity in your family. And like, it's just this perpetual cycle, right? And then you become distracted with everything. It's just like that happens in even our parenting, this very small scale where we can just become discouraged, discouraged maybe in your job, discouraged in your calling, discouraged in your sufficiency or lack thereof. Like think about all the ways that the enemy can seek to, to in some ways bring about like just this area of, of discouragement in your heart. How does he do it? I, like he, he does it when you, when you feel like a failure. Like when you just look around and you just go like, I stink at everything I do. And then maybe you feel like you touch something and you're like, and I touch it and it just goes to waste, right? And it could be a variety of different things. But ultimately, the more that you feel like a failure, the more you become a little fatigued in that too, right? Like you just, you just feel like you're in unrest. And there's just, it seems like the ball never bounces your way. Uh, and, and every time that you, you, you look up, you just go, man, things just aren't working out. And, and not only does I, does I feel like if I touch it, it breaks, but I'm tired of doing this. And it's just easy to have unrest. And you can have unrest physically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, one of the ways that we could ultimately have unrest is in some ways to be thinking about what Thanksgiving is and to have thankful and full hearts, but yet we dread Monday because we're unprepared and we're unready and we're tired and we're exhausted. And we're like, what did we just do all this for? And easily discouragement can come in and just bring about a subtle lie to say the last few days has not been worth it because I'm so tired. And so just think of all the subtle ways the enemy can distract us through discouragement. Fear, frustration, all of these things mount over time. And the question is like, how do I combat that? So if discouragement comes, how do I resist it? How do I combat it? And I would say this, it's simply by meditating on the truth of God's word. And the thing is, is that the truth of God's word, friends, can also be discouraging if not careful. Like just to know the reality of that. So if you remember the words of Jesus as he's talking to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says these words. He says, hey, I've said these things to you. And then he says, that in me you may have peace. Would you go, that sounds fantastic. I've said these things that you know in me there's peace. And you go, peace in the midst of discouragement, peace in the midst of fear, failure, frustration. But then Jesus says these words. He says, I told you that in this world you're going to have tribulation. What does that mean? In this world, you're going to have fear. In this world, you're going to have frustration. In this world, you're going to have failure, disappointment, fatigue. You're going to have circumstances that are out of your control. 
you're going to have things that are broken and that when you touch them, they seem to dissolve to worse. But he says, but take heart for I have overcome the world. What does that mean? What Jesus is simply saying is this, is that when you face discouragement, fix yourself on something that's true. What is true? That in the midst of your tribulation, take heart that Jesus has overcome the world. That in the war and the battle that you're currently facing, that there's ultimately one who's already won the victory, 1 Corinthians 15. And so it's just to remind ourselves of that. I think oftentimes, I don't know about you, but in the Christian life, I think I can kind of chalk it up in my mind that the closer I am to Jesus, that in some ways the things ought to be easier in my life. And I think the, the scriptures would actually speak to something differently than that, right? But we have to be reminded because I think oftentimes what we desire and what we hear, whether it be uh, through prominent teachers or on the radio or uh, whether it be uh, on, on TV, is that in some ways the closer that we grow to Christ, that in some ways the, the easier and the more comfortable our life can be. But ultimately, as you read scripture and you're reminded of the truth of scripture, you are reminded that you are going to have tribulations and that you are going to have hardships, but it's also important that you know what they're for. And so why do we have those? Well, Paul writes to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a rather lengthy passage. I'll put it for you up on the screen. But beginning verse 7, Paul says this. He goes, but we have this treasure uh, in jars of clay. Now, what is our treasure? It's our salvation and our hope in Jesus Christ. That's our treasure. And he goes, and you have it in this jar of clay, which I think about a jar of clay, I think moldable, but certainly breakable, right? Um, I think in some ways made by the potter, but easily destroyed. Cracks, fragments could be glued back together, but probably could also be a leaky vessel, right? And so that's how I think about that. And so as I think about this treasure in a jar of clay, it's to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And we're always carrying in this body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. So I don't know about you, but this morning when I woke up and I'm brushing my teeth and I look in the mirror, I'm reminded that I'm getting older, a little more feeble, um, and there's a lot of us in this room that you would say, yeah, I feel older, you know, and it feels like as Thanksgiving comes, it moves faster than it did the year before. And you're just reminded that when you look in the mirror, that this jar of clay or Paul says this body of death is something that you're carrying around. What does that mean? It means that you and I um, creating the image of God are physical and our physical body, though given by God, is going to return to dust and that it ultimately is broken. But what's incredible about that is he goes, but you're also carrying around this body of death so that there's a purpose. And what is it? For we who live, verse 11, are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal, mortal flesh. That the more we die daily physically, ultimately the more we resemble Christ daily spiritually. That the more that you're aware of your feeble brokenness and the ways you don't measure up, the ways you are discouraged, as you point yourself back to God and his word and the truth of that, you can be reminded of what Jesus is doing in you. What he desires to do through you. So basically, Paul says, hey, death is in work in us, but life is in you. So he goes, while death is ultimately destroying our fragmented bodies, he goes, we still produce life, and we still produce hope, and we, we still remind ourselves that, yes, we've been struck down, but we're not destroyed. Yes, absolutely. Are we at times perplexed and confused? Yeah, but don't be driven over to despair. Paul then goes on. He goes, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. He says, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with him, uh, with Jesus, and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The more your feeble body breaks down, the more you're renewed day by day in his purposes and reminded of his truth in the midst of discouragement, the more that you exalt the glory of God and the more you represent the goodness of him to other people. And he goes, and so yes, you're suffering, 
But as you suffer and you resemble more of Christ and your mind is renewed in the midst of your, your challenges, he goes, the more exaltation and the more praise that happens because of what God is doing in the midst of those things. Then look what Paul says as he kind of closes this thought. He says, and so we do not lose heart. Remember what Jesus said? Hey, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. Paul says, hey, don't lose heart. Why? Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So yeah, our, 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 our outer body being destroyed, but our inner body being renewed into the image of Christ. Look at verse 17. This is our hope in the midst of discouragement. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What does that mean? It means that though we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we shall fear no evil, for our God is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. Now, the question is not if we'll walk through the valley of shadow of death. The question is when. And then when we walk through it and when we are confused or perplexed or feel in some ways abandoned, to renew our mind means to reflect on the truth of God's word. And when driven to despair, we are not hopeless because of God's reminder and the truth of Scripture. And friends, this is only a fragment of what God is encouraging us in. But the question I ask you today is this. Has the enemy in some ways severed your mind through discouragement? And so I just want to put it for you up on a scale of 1 to 10. Are you more discouraged today or are you more dependent? And if you were just to be honest with yourself about your present reality, your circumstances, the relational capacity you have, the fatigue, the feelings of failure, the fear that's taking place, all of those things that in some ways you're wrestling with in your heart and mind. Do you go, I'm, I feel a little closer to discouragement than I do to dependency upon God's truth? I would say, hey, take that test for yourself and don't become overconfident. But here's the deal. Discouragement ultimately leads to the second thing, which is doubt. Doubt. What is doubt? Um, doubt is when you struggle to think about how you overcome things that are your present reality. So what is your present reality? You feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel unloved. In some ways, you feel unworthy. You feel dirty. You feel like you can't get over the hump of your past. For some of us in here, you, you feel hopeless. You, you just don't know how you're going to climb out of the hole that you're in. And you didn't dig the hole. You happened to fall into it. But you just go, I, I just don't know how I get out of it. And you can't see within your own person the skills, the ability, the purpose, the potential to climb your way out. In some ways, you feel stuck. And you feel in a rut. And there's a huge disconnection between your head and your heart. And ultimately, the helmet of salvation is not anything because right now you don't even have the shoes of peace. You're being tossed to and fro daily. Like every day you wake up and you're like, I don't even know who I am anymore. And this discouragement has moved to doubt. Friends, I just want you to know you're not alone in doubt. Some of the greatest people in the Bible doubted. Abraham and Sarah doubted the faithfulness of God when he said, We're, I'm going to give you a child. Maybe you've been there, right? You doubted the faithfulness of God. And he goes, hey, look, I, I'm going to come through for you. And Sarah laughed at God. One of the 12 disciples who knew that Jesus was dead, his name was Thomas, struggled to believe in Jesus and his resurrection and ultimately said, I will not believe until I see and touch the nail prints in his hands. And I think that's some of the way we are wired, right? Like seeing is believing. Believing is touching and feeling and it's tangible. What, what's interesting, Paul said to the church of Corinth, he goes, no, like you trust in things that are unseen, that are transient. And he goes, and here's the deal. You, you just need to know that as you move forward, the thing that you are prone to is doubt. Self-pity, self-doubt. How do we... How do we climb out of that hole? And you go, well, it's ultimately, yeah, God's word. Yes, but it's taking every thought captive. At the end of the day, when you have a garden and you're trying to produce good things, what comes along the path, right, are seeds of discouragement. And they kind of crop up as weeds. And friends, if you're not strategic about going and pulling out the weeds in the garden, then they're going to choke out the, the good things. 
And, and one of the things I would just encourage you, as you implant more and more good things, the weeds have less really room to grow. The more that you study and ultimately seek to memorize God's word and plant that on your heart that you might not sin against God, Psalm 119, the more you have less room for those other things. Friends, doubt can creep in pretty quickly, and we have to take every thought captive. That's what Paul said to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. He says, though we walk in the flesh, okay, this mortal body, this death that we carry around, he goes, we're not waging war according to the flesh. He said that to, to the church of Ephesus, that the war is not in the flesh. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He goes, if you think that this is a fleshly battle, he goes, you're already powerless to do what God wants. If you think that every circumstance and every failure and every fear and everything that you're dealing with, he goes, if you think it's a result of happenstance or it's just the way the dice were rolled, and he goes, you're missing it because it's not flesh. He goes, it's a spiritual thing. And he goes, and so we destroy, verse 5, arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth in a similar fashion. He just said, look, I'm ready to beat my body into submission. Ultimately, the more we grow in conformity to Christ, the more we're willing to beat our body into obedience. And the more we become disciplined, the more we take every thought captive. Every doubt, every discouragement, ultimately, we take it and we test it and we approve it. And we seek to spiritually discern what the will of God is. Ultimately, what is good, what is perfect, and what is pleasing, Romans 12, verse 2. And the question is, you got to ask yourself, is how well am I doing? And what is it that you're worried about? What is it that you're thinking about? What is of first importance to you? And I would just say, it's got to be the things of God. That's why Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 4, that same chapter where he's talking about that he gives um, pastors and apostles and preachers and teachers for the work of service so the, the saints are built up. They're not tossed to and fro. They're, they're growing into maturity. Just beyond that, he says this. He says, assuming that you've heard about him, which is Christ and his salvation, he says, as you were taught in him, and these truths that are in Jesus, he says, you should put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, which is created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ultimately, it is a daily battle in which you and I are plucking the weeds and the lies of Satan's distorted ways and we are implanting them with seeds of righteousness and truth which is a real challenge for me matter of fact um over the last couple of years i would just say that it's been difficult like when i say difficult like the church in america has changed drastically since covid like it just has it's kind of affected everything in our lives right um we kind of have negative connotation towards it because we're like things are just not the same but friends, it wasn't just COVID. There's just other things that have been in, you know, in my life and certainly impacted me. And, and friends, I'll just tell you that over the last couple of years and even as recent in the last few months, like I've really wrestled with a battle in my mind. It started with discouragement and then just kind of led to doubt. And, and here's the things I began to just really doubt. I really doubted whether or not I had the sufficiency, the skill set, the leadership ability to lead our church into the future. Um, and then in some ways, when you're prone to believe those doubts and ultimately you, you, you kind of hear different things, like it's just easy to begin to, to not only be discouraged, but now to believe those things. And so I think it's just really easy at some point to, to kind of begin to, to look and assess and you just go, hey, do I have the tools Hey, am I bottleneck in this place? Hey, would it, would it ultimately be better without me? Um, was I the planter and then somebody else comes along and they water? And so it, you just have this Paul, Apollo situation playing out in your head and your heart. And then at some point you just begin to look in all the ways that you fail and you think about all the things that you have on your to-do list and the things that you're not getting done and the distractions that take place. And at the end of the day, you look up and at some point you're, just, you're not only discouraged, but you just doubt like, what am I doing? 
And then you think, you know what, maybe I could go and work at Home Depot and just move lumber or something. And then I think, well, that would be easier, right? But then I've been to Home Depot recently, and I saw some of the difficult people there. And I'm like, that's not going to be easier, right? In the middle of all this, I'm like, I'm praying, I'm processing, and, and just genuinely, to be completely honest, it has been prayer and it has been processing. Conversations with my community, conversations with several people that I love. And as we're processing and praying through all that, one day I open up my inbox and my email, and, and it's a podcast some, from, from, from some friends of mine, and it said, how to leave your job well. And uh, I remember uh, going, hey, Kelly, look what I just got. And I had her, you know, and at the time I laughed, but because of the discouragement and the doubt, I'm like, man, I need to look into this. Like, how do I leave well, you know? And the deal is, I think I share that just because I think you probably have experienced something like that before too, right? Where you just look up and you're like, man, I don't, I stink at what I do. And, and everything I touch seems to fall apart or, man, I wonder what people think about me. And you just, you just kind of find yourself in this rut, right? So how do you get out of it? Listen, here's how I've gotten out of it. Um, I, have, I have sought to be in God's word. I've sought to have conversations, hard, genuine, thoughtful conversations with people I trust, with people that love me, that people who love our, our church and love our flock. And, and just as we pray and process and spiritually discern all those things, I've had to take a lot of thought captive. Um, I've, I've had to mourn lots of things that in some ways might have become idols for me. And in a lot of ways, the Lord has had to shape my heart and refine me. And, and here's the deal. I would love to tell you that, hey, man, I'm out of that season. And I'm like, I'm on the mountaintop. And hey, here we go, baby. Let's, we're moving forward. But if I could just be honest with you, it's a daily battle for me right now. And maybe you're in a similar situation. It looks a little differently. Hey, battle well. Pluck the weeds out of the garden and continually take every thought captive. Because here's ultimately what I can tell you right now. God has called me to be useful in ministry. God has called me to teach his word. Like, I know that. God does not desire that I go and do something that looks different than that at this season. Although, I struggle sometimes to think there's an easier job. But at the end of the day, friends, can I just tell you, wherever God has you, ultimately, what's he want us to do? He wants us to be fruitful. And he wants us to, to produce a fruit of righteousness so that others would see his glory and ultimately be a part of his good. And that's what we should be doing, regardless of where we are. But I'll tell you, that's something that I have to battle through consistently. And so let me just put it for you up on the screen. If you were to think about doubt or spiritual discernment on a scale of 1 to 10, what, where would you land? And so here we go. We're going to put it for you up on the screen. Doubt or spiritual discernment? Would you say, man, I kind of lean more to the doubt or, man, spiritually discerned, which means I take every thought captive. I, I really feel like I'm standing firm. I'm, I really am not easily moved. Where would you be? And so I would just say, like, over the last handful of months, I've probably been on that, like, two or three range. Like, I've been tossed to and fro, and it stinks, right? Um, but we take every thought captive. Why? Because ultimately, as we move from discouragement to doubt, it can bring about discord. Discord is an unsettlement in, in where you are, and ultimately it impacts lots of things. Relationships, um, potentially your future plans. And so the question is, is, what is discord? Discord is when you just don't agree on the, the things that God's calling you to. And you may have a disagreement with God, and you may have some disagreements with others. But at the end of the day, the question is, is how do you combat that? When the enemy wants to permeate and promote discord within you, within your fellowship, within your family, within your marriage, within the church, within your job, in the workplace, what do you do? Well, here's the deal. Ultimately, you grow in knowledge. You grow in knowledge. And do you see how all of these are pointing back to the sword of the Spirit? The sword of the Spirit, which is our defender, the very thing, it's, it is the Word of God. So we grow in knowledge. In what ways? Well, uh, Peter writes it this way uh, in his second letter. He says, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to him be glory both now and 
to the day of eternity. And you see time and time again, we're encouraged to grow in knowledge. But listen, not in the kind of knowledge that puffs up, but the kind of knowledge that ultimately builds itself through love. And so knowledge, just for the sake of making you smarter sinner, is not the knowledge that we're trying to acquire. Let me say it one more time. The knowledge that would make you a smarter sinner is not the kind of knowledge that we're trying to ultimately build up. We're trying to, to grow in knowledge so that our minds and our hearts are renewed in the image of our creator. That if we have the mind of Christ, then we respond with the way of Christ. And in disunity, you and I have options on how we're going to respond, right? And the question is, is how well are you doing in this area? James writes this in James chapter 3, a famous chapter about the tongue. This little passage is skipped over. But in James chapter 3, verses 13 and following, he says, Hey, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, the question I would ask you is this. Who is the wisest person that ever lived? Some of you are like Solomon, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trump you on that. I'm going to say Jesus, okay? Right? Anybody? Jesus or Solomon? Your choice. Who, who says Jesus? Go ahead. Okay, yeah, I'm going to say Jesus, okay? But we're, we're like conditioned to say Solomon, so I get that. Jesus is probably the wisest person. So who is wise and understanding among you? That's our goal. To have the mind of Christ is the goal. It goes on and says, By his good conduct, let him show his works and meekness of wisdom. But if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false about the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual, and then look look what James says, the half-brother of Jesus. He goes, it's demonic. What? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm reading this, and I'm like, okay, it's one thing to have discord, and it's one thing to say, well, you know what? That's unspiritual. It's one thing to say it's unhealthy. But what he says is the wisdom that comes from above, the one that promotes the mind of Christ, is to realize that discord and disunity is demonic. Have you thought about that lately? That permeating disunity and gossip and factions is ultimately what James would say is demonic. Why does he say that? I think he says that just to help you and I clearly discern that when we take part in discord and disunity, it is not promoting the mind of Christ. It is not like our Savior. And so he just clearly says that. He even goes on and he says this. He gives us the... Uh, in the contrast to that, verse 17, he says, But wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and is a harvest of righteousness that ultimately sows itself in peace by those who make peace. In a world of confusion and chaos and ultimately disunity, the person of peace, the one who resembles Jesus, is the one who has a cup of coffee with anyone, even their enemies. And I pray, friends, if I'm known for anything, I pray I'll have a cup of coffee with my enemy. Ultimately, I pray that I am not a peace faker, but a peacemaker. I pray that the Lord would do that in us, not because ultimately it comes natural, because it doesn't. You know when it comes natural to me? Discouragement, doubt, fear, failure. I want to run, right? I want to sleep. I want to pull the covers up over my head. Anybody else like, that's you? Like, I don't want to deal with the world. Like, like let me like just put on some TV and pretend that everything's a fairy tale. But he says, no, the wisdom that comes from God, the kind that ultimately pushes back against discord, is peaceable. It resembles our Savior. In Nazi Germany, Hitler had an objective, and he basically took anyone that would call themselves a part of the church or Christians, and he basically lumped them into one denomination. He basically says, you're all going to act as if you're one. So you're gonna, if you're going to have a gathering, you're all going to gather. If you're going to have, and he basically sought to want, make them in one way a one world church. That's what his goal was. The problem was is that there was a, a portion of them who in some ways sought to fall in line with Hitler. And there was another group that resisted Hitler greatly. Well, the challenge was is that now this group that resist Hitler, they begin to experience persecution while those who fell in line in some ways don't face a whole lot of hardship at all. 
And so they have lives of ease and comfort, while those who resisted have lives of torment and persecution. Matter of fact, of the groups that have resisted, almost all of them experienced not only personal hardship, but persecution within their family, that all of their families would have been put through Holocaust, and ultimately they would have saw death. Could you imagine being a part of the group who would not fall in line with Hitler and his schemes and the animosity and the resentment and the bitterness and the, the frustration that could have occurred there? Well, it did. And Francis Schaeffer actually told the story later. He said that he knew uh, someone that was a part of, of that faction. And he said after the war was over, those two groups of people went on a retreat together to resolve the matter. And it was days of prayer and tears and difficult hardships. But ultimately, Schaefer actually said and concluded that his friend said that after days of meeting with the Lord and experiencing the forgiveness of our Savior, that forgiveness was granted even though hostility was still of mind. And as God renewed minds and hearts, they came out of that, that meeting peaceably and centered on unity, though their minds and I think their hearts would have had the notion to go against it. Supernaturally, God resolved a matter that could have brought division for the ages. Friends, I think that's what God desires to happen when there's discord within our lives. And so many, many of us, we gathered just over the last handful of days and we said we have thankful hearts and we experienced thanksgiving, but there's seeds of doubt, discouragement, and even discord that we've got to deal with. And I pray you would have the courage to do so. And so my question would simply be this. If you were to ask your friends, am I known to be more of a person of discord or am I known to be a person of peace? Do you know when we planted Stone Point 11 and a half years ago, the number one prayer we had is that God would send us a person of peace. Somebody who was loved, respected, and ultimately that people would see as a peacemaker within the community. And I'm so thankful that God brought us several of them. And to this day, many of the peacemakers are still here and are fruitful in their work. And I'm just so grateful for that. And so where do you land? What a great challenge. But here's the deal. Let's close up with this fourth one. The fourth one <clears throat> is distraction. Distraction is when our minds are not resolute. Ultimately, God's calling us to be warriors, and we're in a war. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he just says, hey, listen, may you not as a warrior, as a person who is in the armed forces of God, get caught up in civilian affairs. I don't know about you, but that can be a real tendency for me, to get caught up in civilian affairs. And so what do we do when we get distracted? We set our mind on things above. Paul wrote it to the Colossians this way. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he just says, Hey, if you've been raised with Christ, okay, you have a relationship with him through salvation. So you have the helmet of salvation on. He says, Hey, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Paul just commends the church of, of the Colossae, of Colossae and the Colossians. He goes, hey, resolve to set your eyes on things above. And friends, I don't know about you, but in the midst of discouragement and doubt and discord, I can feel like the whole world's caving in on me. And I can really struggle to, to look at things above. And I, I'll tell you, I, I'm reading God's word, and I have friends who are saying, hey, man, you just need to look towards the heavens. Like, you need to remind yourself of eternity. And I'm like, I know, I know, I get it. But isn't it crazy how oftentimes our mouths say something and our minds and our hearts struggle to follow? That's what the enemy does. And so as we seek to honor Christ in this area, it is just to remind ourselves that the war you're in will not last forever. The battle that you're facing, the storm will eventually blow overhead. But isn't that such a painful, almost, almost um, like blasphemous type thing to say, especially when you're in the middle of the storm? Like, I mean, in some ways, like, 
dude, who are you? Like, isn't that easy to say when you're not in the middle of the storm? But I just want, I just want you to hear every dark valley I've been through, every storm I've faced, every hurdle that I've crossed, every one that has caused me to stumble and hurt me, at some point has gone away. And the way that we remind ourselves that the storm will eventually pass is not only through the truth of God's word and growing in knowledge. It's not just taking every thought captive, but it's reminding yourself that eternity is awaiting. And it's just over the hills, friends. And it feels so distant and it feels like a long way off, but I just want to remind you that the enemy wants you to be centered on you. He wants you to believe that you're the only one that feels the way you feel. He wants you to be isolated, estranged. He wants you to feel like God's only placing these demands on you. He's only sifting you. And I would just tell you, like, you're not alone. And that's why we need community. That's why we need people to constantly remind us, hey, doofus, you're not the only one that's alone. And the reason I said that is because somebody's recently said something to me like that. Like, hey, dude, like, wake up. You're not the only one. But sometimes you feel like that, right? You ever felt like that? Here's the deal. I read this thing um, that was fantastically written, um, and it's on the Navigator's website. But I want to read it to you as we close. And I want you just to sense and feel kind of the weight of what we've been talking about through something that was so poetically written, well-worded and written. And it simply says this. Satan called a worldwide convention. And in his opening address to his demons, he said, hey, we can't keep the Christians from going to church. Hey, and we can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from biblical values. But we can do something else. We can keep them from forming an intimate, continual experience with Christ. If they gain connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to church. Let them have their Christian lifestyles. But let's steal their time so they can't gain the experience and the deep-rooted relationship needed with Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do. I want you to distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining the vital connection throughout their day. When one of the demons stepped up and asked the question, well, Satan, how should we do this? And Satan replied, keep them busy with non-essentials of life and invest in unnumbered schemes to occupy their minds. Tempt them to spend, 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 and then borrow, borrow, borrow. Convince them to work six or seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day so that they can afford their lifestyles. Keep them from spending adequate time with their children and as their families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the presence of their work. Overstimulate their minds so they cannot hear the still small voice of God. Entice them to play music and all different types of things on radio, wherever they drive. Keep, keep them immersed in television. Continually offer that presence within their homes. Fill their coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. newspapers. Pound their minds with news sources 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their email with junk, with sweepstakes, with prizes, awards, with newsletters, a promotion. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their holidays exhausted, disquieted, unprepared for the coming week. And when they gather for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so they leave their souls unfulfilled. Let them be involved in evangelism but crowd their lives with so many good causes they have no time to seek the power that rests in Christ alone. Soon they'll be working in their own strength, sacrificing their own health and their family and unity for the good of the cause. It was quite a convention, and Satan and his demons left, and they went eagerly about their assignments. Oh, how that pierced my soul. And friends, I would just tell you, don't get distracted. Maybe you're like me and you go, Lord, do something in me. Do something in me. Like, help me fight against the fear and the discouragement and the doubt and all those things. Well, Norman Shirk, he wrote this in 1981, two months after I was born. He was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary and he said, Lord, let me meet you on the mountain, Lord just once. He said, you don't have to light or burn the whole bush, just a few smoking uh, branches. 
and I would surely be your Moses. He said, Lord, if you'll meet me on the water, Lord, just once. He goes, it doesn't have to be on White Rock Lake. Just a a little puddle after an annual rain would do. Surely I would be your Peter, Lord. Lord, let me meet you on the road, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to blind me on the roads of Central Expressway. He said, all you got to do is give me a few bright lights on my way to a chapel, and I'll surely be your Paul, Lord. Lord, let me meet you, Lord. Let me meet you just once, anywhere, anytime. But Lord, meeting you in the word of God is very hard sometimes because I find myself being more of a Thomas. And Thomas was the doubter. And friends, I just want you to know that we're prone to doubt God's goodness. And you and I need to encourage one another. And matter of fact, friends, here's the deal. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we are reminded of the coming of the Lord and we are encouraged to not shrink back from encouraging one another. Hebrews chapter 10 is another great passage. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 just remind us to encourage one another as long as it's called today. And the reason why is because we're all prone to these things. Discouragement, doubt, discord, and for our our lives to be distracted, right? And so just want to remind you that in the next few weeks, we're going to gather together as one body on one campus in Edgewood. So beginning next Sunday, December 4th, the following, the 11th, the following, the 18th, we are going to align our hearts We're going to remind one another of the schemes of Satan and how he wants to promote disunity in our lives. But we're going to say we're fighting for unity. And we're going to fight for unity and we're going to promote unity next week as if it's the most important thing we'll do this next year. And we're going to sing together and we're going to celebrate God's goodness together. And then we're going to remind one another of the resolve of the mind of Christ. And ultimately, the mind of Christ, as I read it in James chapter 3, is the person who sits down and has a difficult conversation. It's the person who is one making peace throughout the world. And I am just going to encourage you to be all that God calls you to be. And over the next three weeks, our whole purpose in gathering is simply to align our hearts to a mission that I have been distracted from. Because of Fear and doubt and discouragement and disunity and, and honestly, just stuff that hit the fan. Like it just, I've shrunk back from being God's man. And I've resolved no more, no other person, no other disunity, no other garbage is going to stand in the way of what God has called me to. They don't have that right. It's demonic. And I'm moving forward. And I pray that you'll move forward with me. And I pray that you'll sigh, hey, what is this about? What are we here? And listen, friends, it's not about the non-essentials. I can look across this room and I see, I see a dozen people, probably more. There's some things we just don't agree on. And that is okay. You know what we do agree on? We agree on the person who made peace on our behalf who reconciled us through the bloodshed on the cross for us. And because of that, we have a message to share with people who are hopeless, who are afraid, who are full of doubt and discouragement and discord in their lives. They're looking for someone to have hope. And friends, isn't it amazing that the people who have hope and have the answers are oftentimes the most hopeless, most unsettled, most confused people. And I just say, hey, would you stand with me and say, hey, no more. Let's get on board together and may we make the gospel beautiful even in the midst of our mess. May we praise him, give glory to him and may we make much of his name. And listen, when I say make much of his name, I want you to be clear. I'm not saying make much of my name. And I'm not even saying make much of Stone Point's name. I'm saying let's be clear on what the gospel is and who it's for. And let's not give the enemy any more ways to distract us, discourage us, promote discord, disunity. And ultimately, this idea that everything should be centered around us on earth when ultimately it's an eternal war. 
And so I pray your hearts are encouraged. And I pray that you sense the honesty and the vulnerability of a man who is broken and in need of a Savior day in and day out. Because ultimately, we all rest and stand united in him and because of him. And so here's the deal. Would you do me a favor? As we close, would you stand with me? If the Lord is calling you to as we pray. As our band comes, we're about to sing about the goodness of God, but let's just pray together with full and thankful hearts in great resolve um, as to who Christ is and who he's calling us to be. Father in heaven, may we be an unmoved people. God, not unmoved like stiff-necked and obnoxious and unteachable, but unmoved because we're resolved and because we have the knowledge and the goodness of God's word and because we're fixated on your promises. Lord, help us to be unmoved in the sense that we're moving in and throughout the world doing your purposes, but we're not easily knocked off our task. Lord, help us to be servants. And even when we're treated like servants, may we do it for the glory of God. Lord, may we not revile in return. May we not lose our resolve. God, may we not become short-sighted. But Lord, help us to see the long-term view. Help us to see and feel the weight of eternity. Help us to know that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, think, help us think that even though we're, we're pressed and we're hard-struck, even though we're persecuted, Lord, we're not destroyed. We're not, we're not finished. And so, Lord, give us strength in the midst of these areas where we've been deceived. Help us to rest in your promises. Help us to know your word. Help us to teach your word. Help us to sing your word. And Lord, help us to memorize your word so that we could respond like Jesus did in the wilderness. As it is written, a man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Help us to do your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.